0: We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. So I would like to talk tonight about compassion. In some way, compassion is the center point of spiritual practice. Before we get to compassion, practice is very much about I and I paying attention to the content of my life. Compassion is where we begin to encounter emptiness or spaciousness going beyond contracted identification with this I who is separate. And beginning to realize even that compassion can be spelled with a capital C, that it is our true nature. That when we get out of the way, what remains there is a compassionate heart compassion literally means with passion. But it's not passion as we're thinking about commonly, it's more the passion of Christ, which is an old, old word for suffering. But just think how that word for suffering has transformed into what we mean by compassion now. I think that's a very interesting evolution, right? (laughs) That passion used to be you're caught in suffering and now it's We're excited about something. What is compassion? Compassion is exactly the same thing as love, as loving kindness, but in the context where there is suffering either in you or in what you are relating to. And in fact, traditionally, compassion is taught in Eastern traditions, particularly in Buddhism, as compassion for the suffering other person. Tonglen practice, which we have investigated before, is traditionally taught as doing Tonglen for another person, taking and sending, cultivating compassion for another person. But in the West, because we tend to be approaching spiritual life from a neurotic starting point, that compassion for ourselves is a very important aspect to practice. It is impossible to have compassion without previously cultivating awareness in the mind and being embodied, present, in the sense of grounded and centered. So that in order to have compassion for suffering, There has to be a solid sense of self to have this compassion. In other words, you have to become somebody before you can become nobody. To try to have love and compassion without embodiment, without clear awareness. First of all, there's nobody there to be aware of what we need to have compassion for. And second of all, without clear awareness, without being centered, we will be at the mercy of the environment so that we can have an open heart if the environment is supportive and encouraging, but if the environment is challenging, the environment inwardly and outwardly is challenging, then we tend to close our hearts if we're not centered. Many traditions, and in my life, my own personal practice, uh, and I was a very stubborn case, still am, I guess. It often takes years, if not decades, to cultivate enough clear awareness and being embodied, resting in your body, to be able to be compassionate in an ongoing way, not to be bothered by what's going on in traffic, to have compassion for people who are acting unkind or who are selfish or who are mean-spirited. We look at our political environment now. We look at what's happening to the planet. We look at what's happening to those we love. Difficult to maintain a compassionate relationship with what we see all around us and what we experience inside of us. So the first task in some way is to have compassion for ourselves. If I can't have compassion for my anger and I encounter an angry person, that person will be very challenging for me. It will be very difficult for me to open my heart to that person. If I meet somebody who is very firmly holding their opinion about politics, and I'm very firmly holding my opinion about politics, and I don't have compassion for the suffering that causes me to do that, it's going to be very difficult to have compassion for that other person and for really any communication to go on at all. What exactly is compassion? Compassion has certain defining qualities, as does love, the qualities of the open heart. The first quality is a spacious heart. There are libraries full of books about emptiness and spaciousness. We're not gonna go into it too deeply. One can just imagine breathing the whole sky into your heart, but a spacious heart, an empty heart, means that there is not a lot of identification with I that makes the heart small, that one is able to let the heart expand. You, you breathe spaciousness into the heart. So even though there's suffering, there's not this small chunk of sky of mind that you're identified with. One could imagine that your heart, your heart-mind, is the sky, but you're identified with who you are, so you put a window frame around the chunk of sky that's you. And if the window frame is small enough and a cloud comes into that chunk of window frame in the sky, a cloud of anger, a cloud of happiness, you say, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm afraid, whatever it might happen to be. One identifies with the weather. One identifies with the passing cloud. If we expand the cloud, I'm sorry, if we expand the window, that too, (laughs) we do that a lot. If we expand the window frame, that same size cloud can come. And it's a very different experience. You see the cloud, but you see that there is the context of the blue sky. And we see that the cloud is moving. It's coming, and at one point it's going to be gone. It's a very different experience, and I've mentioned before that even languaging the the cloud of fear. In English, we say "I am afraid," rather small window frame. Mm-hmm. In In Spanish, uh, the translation is "I have fear." In Tibetan, it's "Fear is here," which makes it much easier to be spacious, so that one can do a practice of is my heart spacious? You're going through the day and you're listening to the news and you're talking to friends and you're being alone. Different things are happening. And your practice going on in the background is, is my heart spacious? Is it closing down because I don't like the way that person is behaving or I don't like what's going on in me and I'm really resistant to that? The next quality of the, of the open heart, of the spacious heart is the quality of connectedness. One with, a, with an open heart, one is connected to others, to God, to self, rather than feeling separate. Can one be around suffering and stay connected to it? In Buddhism, we talk about the near and far enemies of wholesome qualities, and the, the far enemy of compassion is indifference. You see suffering, eh, that's their problem, it's not my problem, I'm not going to do anything about that. The near enemy of compassion, as you can probably guess, is pity, where you're aware of the suffering, but you're staying separate from it. You're, you're saying, well, that's a shame. Let me give you some money. Let me make a donation. Or maybe you should go to the chiropractor or the therapist or whatever you need to go to. But I don't want to feel connected to that because that's kind of painful. So one of the qualities of compassion is relationship. In awareness, there isn't necessarily relationship. In centeredness, there's not necessarily relationship. We're with the content of experience. But now we're moving to what is our relationship with experience moment to moment? Is it a spacious relationship? Is it a connected relationship? The third quality of the open heart, of the compassionate heart, is the quality of warmth. That's, I think, a fairly obvious one. When our heart gets cold because of suffering within or without, then obviously no compassion. Can we stay warm in relationship to suffering? And I find it really provocative to choose one of these three qualities and use that as a practice for a while. Just keep noticing the quality of my heart. It's not like I'm focusing on it. It's kind of in the background. I'm just trying to notice the absence of the quality more than I'm creating it all the time, just kind of assuming that that's what's going on if I'm not stuck in something. And... Just noticing those qualities of coldness or lack of connectedness, separateness, or contractedness instead of spaciousness. Another quality that His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks about is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with another being. The Native Americans have some kind of saying that you don't know somebody until you've walked a mile in their, their shoes or something like that. In their moccasins. And thank you so much. (laughs) Can we really have compassion for another person until we really feel what it's like to be them? It's not like we're thinking about, oh, it must be difficult, but no. What does it feel like to be what I imagine they're going through now? And to extend that compassion for ourselves to equalize and switch our self with ourselves. In other words, there's not somebody saying, boy, you're really a mess right now, Dale. You're you're really somebody that's not doing too well. It's really hard to have compassion until I can be equal with that part of myself that's suffering and switch myself, that the, the observer, the, the meditator, the observer is able to jump into those moccasins and feel what that feels like. In a way, to me, compassion is the the key to the spiritual path. If you can be compassionate, your heart and your mind will relax. I mean, imagine how simple your life would be if your motivation for action were always compassion, not, are they going to like me? Am I going to get enough? Questions like that. But what is the compassionate thing to do? Compassion is not a one-directional event. I have a lot of caregivers in my groups. And a lot of times people are saying, I have such an easy time having compassion for my patient, my client, but it's so hard having compassion for myself. And I would suggest that you really can't have true compassion for all those people if you don't have compassion for yourself. You can have pity. You can have warm feelings, maybe. But true compassion involves being able to switch with this other person. Compassion is the center of practice because if we can have compassion, the mind settles down because we can meet things with an open heart. Whereas if there's not compassion, we're always bobbing and weaving because we're afraid something's going to come that's going to be too challenging for our heart. Bringing this compassion into daily activity is, is really quite remarkable. Let me tell you one or two very brief stories about me and, my, me and compassion. They both involve me being in India, where things seem to come into more clear focus at times. In the first case, I and three of my friends were in a room with a Dalai Lama and a translator in a place called Bodh Gaya, where it's a very poor place. It's the place where the Buddha achieved enlightenment under a big, huge Bodhi tree. He is, according to the Tibetans, the incarnation of Chinrezi, the god of compassion. He is the living embodiment of compassion on the earth. In Bodh Gaya, as I said, a very poor place. There were wild dogs that were starving to death. They had open sores. They were so thin you could see their, their ribs through their skin. People would say, please don't feed the dogs. It just perpetuates their misery. Just let them starve to death. It's the best thing to do. And I was, a, I was a kind of a softy, and I'd buy old food and sneak behind buildings and feed the dogs. Whether that was the compassionate thing to do, I'm not sure. But there we were with the Dalai Lama. Of course, we started talking about compassion. And he eventually said, I'm the Dalai Lama. I'm the head of the Tibetan religion. And at that time, I'm the head of the Tibetan state, which he no longer is. Which is greater, me, the Dalai Lama, or these 20 or 30 starving dogs in Bodh Gaya? One of my friends, a good straight man, said, well, he's the Dalai Lama. You're the Dalai Lama. You're much greater than they are. And he said, no. I am one and they are many, they are greater than I am. And at first I thought this was kind of like a teaching device he was using. He was just trying to get us to understand a philosophical point about compassion. As those words settled into me, I could feel that he lived that, that he was equal to one starving dog. And I had just come from America. I had my Ph.D. I was... I'm gonna get enlightened, (laughs) pretty special. And it just shocked me. What people say about the Dalai Lama is that he might give a talk and when he's leaving the auditorium or the hotel he's going out through the kitchen and he's just as present and kind and connected with the kitchen staff as he is with the mayor that he was just talking to up in the auditorium. He is just there with each person. Each person is equally important. Each being, whether it's an animal or a dog or a human being, it's, it's a being who is deserving of love and compassion. The second story is I was in Benares right after I got to India. And there's a lot of beggars in Benares. It's a very auspicious place to come and die. Uh, there's a lot of people who are approaching death there, people will have a stack of coins tied up in the corner of their cloth that they wear so that when they die, there's enough money to buy wood for a funeral pyre. When somebody dies, they they put them on a pallet or something and carry the person to the burning gods. And for the first half of the journey, they're carrying them with their head towards their home and their feet toward the burning god and halfway they turn them around so now their head is going toward the burning god and their feet are back towards home and when they get to the burning god they put them on the burning god and if the person's family is there as they begin the fire the oldest son of the of the man if it's a male person takes a staff and smashes the head of his father so that his soul can come out and go to heaven which is a very interesting Oedipal activity. <laughs> a long time ago, even the widow would jump onto the fire and she would die with her deceased husband. That doesn't happen so much anymore. But there I was in Benares, close to the Ganges River, the most famous bathing ghat, Often you see pictures of India, photographs. The stereotypical one is... This Ashma Ghat, where these people are going down these big uh, steps and bathing, pouring water on their heads. And there was a lineup of beggars, maybe 100 beggars long, mendicants with their begging bowl out in front of them from the river up, up the road. It was 112, 115 degrees, incredibly noisy, incredibly dusty, rough cobblestone road supposedly the most crowded square mile on the planet in terms of people on the street. And I had changed a bunch of bills into a whole bunch of coins, and I was going down the row giving each person a coin. And I finally came to a young woman that completely stopped me in my tracks. She was a leper. She had no hands and no feet. She had rusty tin cans shoved on her wrist stumps, and to her chest was strapped a tiny, tiny baby with filthy, dirty rags. And I looked at this and I just, I couldn't grasp what was going to happen to this baby. What what could possibly happen here? I mean, she, she could barely take care of herself, what was going to happen to the baby. My mind started spinning, and instead of giving her a coin, I went in my other pocket and pulled out a relatively large bill and put it in her begging bowl. She looked down at the money, and her expression began to change. She became angry, which really surprised me. I thought she'd be grateful for this windfall of money from this Westerner, the only Westerner on the street, and she looked up at me, and she was angry. She looked back at the money. She got more angry, she knocked the begging bowl flying, the money went flying, and she angrily propelled herself away. End of the story. I stood there, should I be embarrassed, what just happened? And it took me a few days or hours, I forget, but it took a while for me to figure out what probably happened was she knew that I felt sorry for her, that I felt pity that my heart closed. I couldn't connect with her. And she couldn't afford to take money from somebody who felt pity. So she would rather just not take the money than take money that was coming from that place. What should I have done when I was standing there and was so bothered by what I was projecting was the circumstance that she was living in? Should I have given her more money? Should I have given her less money? Should I have tried to feel compassion for her? These are suggestions people often make. And I would respond, I was incapable of doing any of those things. What I needed to do was have compassion for the part of me that was totally freaked out by that baby. When I looked at that baby, my wounded inner child, if I can use that trite term, was really upset and terrified. And that what I needed to do was for me to be present and me get to the point where I can have compassion for how frightened this one part of me is and then maybe I can have compassion for her and then maybe we can have some kind of connection and then maybe I'll do the right thing, whatever that might happen to be. I wouldn't have any idea what the right thing was because my heart was so closed. That's a kind of extreme example. But often we go into life thinking I should have compassion for this other person or this circumstance. And really, in trying to do that, we aren't doing it very well at all. What we need to do is take a step back and have compassion for the place in us that can't do the practice. A friend called me several months ago who had had both of his parents die. I had helped him, helped his parents die, and he had some really incomplete business with his father. He decided during a long holiday weekend that he was gonna spend three days of doing Tonglen for his father and see if he could heal his relationship with his father by feeling love and compassion for his father. And he tried and he tried and he, he just couldn't do it. He felt so horrible. And he finally called up and said, I can't do it. And I said, maybe you need to have compassion for the place in you that's so hurt by your relationship with your father. Can you have compassion for yourself? And he started weeping as I said that. And he said, I know that's what I need to do. And then he did that. And then he was able to do the practice with his father. Maybe we don't start with the most difficult person in our life. We don't start with an unnamed political figure. We don't start with your parent, maybe you start with somebody that irritates you a little bit. And see if, as you think about them, you can open your heart, open your compassionate heart. Compassion doesn't mean liking somebody. It doesn't mean approving of their behavior. Compassion doesn't preclude you from protesting or being an activist in response to something. But when we think about the people that have really changed society... People like Martin Luther King and Mohandas Gandhi, Nelson Mandela. There are people that were able to feel compassion for those that were really oppressing them. There's a story that Gandhi was imprisoned by the British up in the Himalayas, the place that I actually did a retreat at, now called the Gandhi Ashram. And the, the, the jailer gave him blankets Filled with lice. And he, he took the blankets, seeing the lice, and felt compassion for the jailer and thanked him very much for the blankets instead of getting angry with the guy. Martin Luther King, when those people were going over that bridge or something and his, his, his fellow protesters were being attacked by dogs and beaten with sticks, his counsel was to keep feeling compassion for those that were attacking. Uh, the protesters. Now, I'm not saying this is an easy thing. I'm not saying it's an easy thing at all. But there is great power in the compassionate heart. There is great power in the compassionate heart. Being a parent, one sees that compassion isn't always being nice, that sometimes tough love is required, that sometimes you have to be very strong with a child and say, no, you can't do that, and say it strongly enough that the child gets the message. That caving in all the time and just being nice, you might think, oh, that's so compassionate, the way that mother or that father is acting. But actually, it's not. Compassion means standing up for what your heart is really revealing. To take the next step, that what we really need is a combination of wisdom and compassion. Compassion without wisdom tends to be mushy and exhausting, and wisdom without compassion tends to be dry and brittle. What is this wisdom that keeps compassion from being mushy? And it's the wisdom of how suffering arises and that there isn't a separate self who is feeling compassion. That the nature of reality is this emptiness, this spaciousness, the nature, and it's the heart that reveals this nature. So that when we think of compassion as just this nice, warm, fuzzy feeling that I am feeling, that is something that maybe is a stepping stone to true compassion, but it isn't true compassion. We need to keep balancing compassion with wisdom. You have a child, for example, that you live on a, uh, a a street. It's not a super busy street, but there is this traffic on the street. Your child's old enough to, maybe old enough to play unsupervised in the front yard. You look out the window and the child has gone into the street to get a ball that bounced into the street. And you say, don't do that anywhere, that's really dangerous. So the child says, okay, mommy, and and comes back in the front yard and plays well, and you're kind of keeping your eye on things, and once again, the ball goes out on the street and the child does it again. So is the compassionate thing just to be kind and sweet, or can we be spacious enough, empty enough to to just let a strong expression come out that it might even look like you're angry or something? get the child to really understand that this is not permissible. Another example is that many of us in the room, many of us listening to this, are caregivers. We're all caregivers at times. There is something called compassion fatigue in the biz. My sense of it is that it's really non-compassion fatigue, that if you really are truly compassionate, there is no fatigue because there's nobody to get fatigued, that if, in fact, you are getting fatigued by being around sick people or dying people or wounded people, of uh, one sort of woundedness or another, that there is still something in you resisting the pain and suffering that that person is going through. and the pain and suffering that arises in you in response to this other human being. If you're truly compassionate, suffering passes right through like a cloud passes through the sky without leaving a trace or a shadow. Compassion is not really about changing the other person. If you have compassion for somebody, it's really healing your own heart. So if there's somebody in the world that every time you think about them, your heart closes. That concept, that projection of who that person is, and yes, there are people in the world who are truly evil. Basically, that person or your impression of that person is closing your heart. So what what we're after here is for you to be able to be with or think about anybody and have an open heart If we're cultivating compassion to fix the other people, we're going to be really disappointed. But if we're creating this heart energy in ourselves and we are then acting, we're being an activist, we're being a parent, we're being a a caregiver from the place of compassion, then the most possible healing that can happen is going to happen. And once again, The first thing is, can you be in your heart? Can you let the energy of the universe flow through you? We've even talked about the fact we can't be compassionate in an ongoing way until we can be aware and embodied in our center. And this energy that goes through the belly, the the chi, the shakti, the prana of the universe, That's the energy that allows us then to express itself through compassion. You're with a person who's dying, and they're having a really hard time. That's bothering you, and you have compassion for the place that's bothering you, and then you have compassion for them. They might not end up going beyond being bothered. They might die bothered, which is a shame, but that is their karma. You do your best to bring love, to bring skillful healing to the bedside, but it's up to God whether this person is healed or not, whether they're able to die without being bothered. I understand that we can think about certain people, people that we're close to, people that we read about in the news, and we think, if I do some Tonglen, if I have compassion for this person, maybe they will change. And maybe if everybody in the country beamed love to one person, Maybe that person would change. Maybe it would take everybody. But maybe some people are beyond that. Who knows? Can you heal your heart and be the most loving, compassionate possible you?